Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And I'm delighted today to welcome to the programme Robert Bowman. Robert Bowman is the Director of Research for the Institute for Religious Research, IRR.org, which is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry in apologetics and discernment. And in addition to having taught for many years in universities, including Luther Rice University and Biola University, he has worked with several apologetics and discernment ministries and is the author of many books, including one which makes him a particularly interesting guest for today's program, The Word Faith Controversy, Understanding the Health and Wealth Gospel. So Robert Bowman, welcome to the show and thank you very much indeed for sparing the time to come on. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, as I said, very much like to speak about the Word of Faith movement, and I'm not assuming that everybody who's listening to the podcast will necessarily know what that's even about. So could you possibly give us an idea of what this so-called Word of Faith movement in Christianity is and what its distinctive features are? Uh, Yes, this is a movement that is associated especially with certain televangelists such as the late Kenneth Hagen, who is regarded as the father of the movement, Kenneth Copeland, Frederick Casey Price, Charles Capps, who I think is not so much a televangelist, but certainly a popular teacher in the movement, and a number of other individuals, including some younger generation, if I may call them that, teachers in the movement that are not as into the theology of the Word of Faith doctrine as as uh, some of the older teachers, and this would include Joel Osteen, for example, who is one of the most popular preachers in the United States, he is uh, Word of Faith as well. And basically, this is a movement that began with Kenneth Hagin, although there are precursors to him, in the 1950s, and as the name Word of Faith or Word Faith expresses, maintains that believers are called upon by God to accomplish certain things in their lives, speaking what are called words of faith, which I'm sure we can go into the details of what that means as we go along here. Yes, I would love to do that. Now, from what you say there, it does give the impression that this is a very, very influential movement. Um, How widespread would you say that it is? Well, I would say that there are millions of people around the world who embrace these ideas and and are influenced by the movement. It might be in the tens of millions. Hard to know exactly because a lot of the people that are influenced by this movement are receiving the ideas and the teaching through watching television or through uh, reading books and may not be members of congregations that add up members that teach it. So the influence of the movement definitely exceeds by a large margin the number of people who are, as it were, card-carrying members of churches that teach it. Mm-hmm. Very, very difficult to assess how many people that actually is. And But why, right. why would you say that this is of concern, briefly? Could you give us an idea why it concerns you? Well, the Word of Faith movement teaches doctrines that are contrary to the Bible, so that's the beginning point here, and specifically doctrines that raise expectations of what Christians can and should try to do in their lives that are not only unbiblical but also unrealistic. This can lead to disillusionment, people losing their faith because it didn't work. It also leads to division in the body of Christ as battle lines are drawn between those who accept these novel teachings and those who recognize them as being unbiblical and unfounded. So those are just two uh, of the kinds of negative effects that this teaching can have and does have. Yes, I'd like to ask you more about that uh, later, actually, after we've talked a little bit more about the distinctive features of the the doctrines themselves. Um, First of all, could I ask you about the history of the movement? Because you pointed there to the evangelist and preacher Kenneth Hagen, and I believe that he's normally considered to be the father of the movement, although the sources behind it reach back, of course, uh, much beyond him. So could you tell us a little bit about his role in all this? Sure. Well, as in the case of practically every movement, uh, there are things that happened prior to its distinctive origins that set the stage. But Kenneth Hagin is regarded by people in the movement itself as the founder of the movement. Kenneth Hagin was a Pentecostal evangelist who started teaching in the 1950s that God had revealed to him 
in and through Scripture, but nevertheless, it was a distinct revelation to him, uh, an understanding of faith as it relates especially to both healing and prosperity. And this revelation is the backbone of the doctrinal beliefs of the Word Faith Movement. He began teaching it. He went around the country. Uh, He eventually went on television. There is a network called the Trinity Broadcasting Network, broadcasting throughout the world that started here in the United States. And the Trinity Broadcasting Network exports this Word Faith doctrine around the world. It also has programming that's not Word of Faith, but the founders and and people that run the the network are Word of Faith, and so are many of the broadcasters on it. So through TBN in particular, this teaching has become internationally known, and many of the evangelists that are featured on the Trinity Broadcasting Network have gone around to various countries in the world, uh, including third world countries, to promote their message and to gain followers. And so would you say that the center of their teaching really is the historic gospel, Christ crucified and resurrected, or do you think they tend to marginalize that and push their own, as you say, the health and wealth teaching to the front, to the fore? Well, to be fair, they certainly think of themselves as Christians whose message is focused in some way on Jesus Christ. They affirm the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. It is part of their belief system. However, it does tend very often to not play the role, the central role in the experience of someone who's part of the movement that it would in a typical evangelical church. It doesn't typically have the central role in the preaching or the proclamation of uh, Word of Faith teachers. And a perfectly good example would be Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen's messages week after week after week are largely positive thinking type messages, but then at the very end, he will give a very evangelical sounding invitation to his uh, congregation members and also to his television audience to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a kind of perfunctory, you know, almost afterthought to the sermon that has no relationship with the sermon. And nevertheless, it's there because Osteen's father, before he became a Word of Faith evangelist, was a Baptist evangelist. And so they continue the evangelical traditions in some ways and hold to many of the same evangelical doctrines. But then they have added this layer that does tend, I think you could argue, to obscure or to relegate to the back burner, or to really distort the significance of the central aspects of the Christian faith. And it's the distortion, I think, that is especially of concern. Sure. I was just thinking then, as you were speaking, that of the possibility of somebody going along to one of these meetings or watching on television and hearing this very small announcement of the gospel, but nevertheless not having much depth of understanding about what's being said at that moment, and therefore perhaps missing out on making a true commitment to Christ. Do you think that's a possibility in some cases? It's more than a possibility. Many of these evangelists attract people to their flocks and their movement who are interested in it almost exclusively, if not exclusively, for the material benefits that they expect to get out of following the teaching. So they're in it because they're hoping to be healed Mm -hmm. of a physical infirmity or because they expect to become more prosperous and more successful in their life as a result of following the teachings. Many of the individuals who attach themselves to someone like Joel Osteen are not themselves Christians, but like what he says. And so people need to just keep that in mind, that it is quite possible to be in some way related to this movement without really understanding what the gospel is at all. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a trap that we all need to be aware of in any context. When uh, that's right. we're in church, we can give a, a very watered-down message which is approximates to the gospel, which may not actually have any saving value because it's so weak. Um, can I ask you about the possible influence of the writings of a man called E.W. Kenyon? Because I understand that Kenneth Hagen was influenced by him in the early days. 
Yes, E.W. Kenyon was a Baptist pastor in the 1890s and the first few decades of the 20th century who was mentored by another very well-known Baptist pastor at the time, A.J. Gordon, in what was known as the Faith Cure Movement. The Faith Cure Movement is what we would call faith healing today. And it was an evangelical, or at least evangelical-ish, <laughs> right. movement of Baptists and other Protestant evangelicals who believed the Bible, who believed in Christ, and who understood the Christian faith to be one that included within it the promise and the power of freedom from sickness and disease through faith. And Gordon was one of the leading teachers of this idea toward the end of the 19th century, and Kenyon was one of his students uh, who went on to found a Bible college and, and was one of the pioneers of radio evangelism in the first half of the 20th century. Well, Kenyon's doctrines had some in interesting and unique twists that even went beyond the faith cure doctrine of Gordon and people like that. And some of these unique and distinctive ideas that Kenyon developed were picked up by Kenneth Hagin. In fact, some of Hagin's writings actually plagiarized E.W. Kenyon's materials. And by that I mean he copied whole paragraphs or uh, pages of material, in some cases, from materials written by Kenyon into uh, Hagen's own articles or books. I see, word for word. Yes, in many cases, word for word. Or he <laughs> right. would do what the typical plagiarist does, which is he'd change a word here or there to make it <laughs> unique, but it was really the same thing. And I wanted to ask you, uh, when we're talking about E.W. Kenyon and we're talking about this uh, faith cure, are we discussing here something that is different from the normal Christian view of being able to pray to God and ask for healing and for things to go well in your life, which seems to be part of the, the gospel message. We are told to pray in faith. Is it radically different from that? It is radically different. And there's a couple of stages here that need to be distinguished. In the teaching of A.J. Gordon and I would say even E.W. Kenyon, Prayer is effective because God is effective, because God is powerful, and he promises to answer your prayers for certain things if you pray in faith. So there is this idea, at least in the classic faith cure tradition, that God promises to heal you if you are a believer in Christ and you stand on the promises, as uh, many of us of Baptist heritage would say, God promises to heal you. If you claim the promises, you're going to be healed. Now, Kenyon himself developed this idea, though, in a direction that led to a kind of second stage idea, which is that not only does God have the power to heal, but you have the power to heal yourself in a way by a delegation of this power or authority that God gives to his creatures who are made in his image, who are, as Kenneth Hagin put it, little gods who are able to accomplish things in their lives by speaking words of faith or positive confessions to articulate verbally what it is that you are believing. And basically the idea is if you believe it and you say it, it's going to come true. Now we might have to unpack that a little bit, but you can see right away that's very different than the traditional understanding of prayer, which is an appeal to God to do something that you can't make happen, and you have no control over whether God's going to say yes or no. That's the traditional understanding of prayer. Indeed, it seems to be a, a, an appeal to a person, God as a person, to make a decision whether it's right for you at any particular time to answer that prayer in the affirmative, whereas what you're describing here seems to suggest that you are almost coercing God. Well, God obligating himself is one way of thinking this, that God has said, I promise that if you ask and you ask in the right way and so forth, uh, you'll get a yes. And so in that sense, you could say God is obligated himself. But really, the word faith teaching goes beyond that and says, God has made you the kind of being that you can make this happen for yourself. You're not waiting for God to do it. You do it. God's already told you you can do it. He's given you the power. He's given you the authority. You just have to bring these things into realization by speaking these words of faith. So that does change the theological picture here in a very radical way. Where well, you are becoming little gods yourselves in a way. 
Yes, and they use that language. Right, I do want to ask you about that in a moment, but can can I ask you about a possible connection with the latter rain movement? Yes, the term latter rain is used in the history of Christianity to refer to a variety of movements that saw themselves as kind of creating the bookends of church history, whereas in the beginning of the Christian church history, in the first century in the New Testament, you have an outpouring of miraculous manifestations through the apostles. The latter rain hypothesis is that at the very end of church history, just before the second coming, there will be a kind of closure of church history with the other bookend of another outpouring of miraculous manifestations that will immediately precede the second coming of Christ. Actually, people have been looking for this for about two centuries. And so whenever there would be some kind of outbreak of reported miraculous experiences or manifestations, people would describe that as a latter rain. And, of course, you can imagine that people use that terminology with regard to the outbreak of Pentecostalism at the beginning of the 20th century. However, the latter rain movement that we're talking about here is another development within Pentecostalism in the 1940s featuring uh, such individuals as William Branham. William Branham was, by all reasonable accounts, a heretic from a Christian point of view. He did not believe in the Trinity, for example, and he held other heretical and peculiar views. But this latter rain movement of the 1940s is the movement out of which Kenneth Hagin himself comes. So it's a movement of, again, a big emphasis on supernatural manifestations, on people receiving revelations, on healings. And, you know, these things keep coming up. And I, I sort of want to jokingly refer to these as the latter, 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 latter rain movements, because <laughs> each generation you'll have a group of people saying, well, that was great back then, but we've got something even more now. And we've got more of it. And it's, uh, this is it. This is, this is the last outbreak of the supernatural right. before Christ can come back. I'd also say that something needs to be said, if I may bring this up here as well, about the relationship between the Word of Faith movement and Pentecostalism. Because a lot of people are confused about this, and I, I want to be fair and accurate in what I say about this. Kenyon was not a Pentecostal. However, he was invited to speak at Pentecostal churches and was very popular in some Pentecostal circles. All along, though, throughout the 20th century, there were and remain into the 21st century Pentecostals who vigorously objected to the teachings of people like Kenyon and Kenneth Hagin. It has never been the position of the mainstream Pentecostal churches. In fact, the Assemblies of God, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world, issued official formal position papers rejecting the teachings of Kenneth Hagin and the other word faith evangelists. Oh, that's very interesting. But Hagin himself was uh, a Pentecostal and considered himself a Pentecostal. So in some ways the movement considers itself to be a child of Pentecostalism, but mainstream Pentecostal leaders and teachers and theologians and scholars have been quick to say that the word faith movement is a distortion of Pentecostal teaching. It is not acceptable in most of those denominations. Now, there are individuals in these churches that believe it, but the denominations as a whole have done what they can to discourage members from buying into the teachings of people like Kenneth Hagin. Mm. Um, now, we need to look in greater detail at what this movement teaches. You've already given us some idea, but there are some other distinctives which we haven't really touched on. And one I'd like to ask you about is their doctrine that there are modern apostles and prophets in the church, and they teach that they are specially anointed apostles. Now, my understanding is that the age of the apostles applies to the uh, New Testament times, but um, apparently, according to them, we do have apostles in the modern world, and they point to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll just read what it says there, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, and their claim, as far as I understand, it is that these apostles are still active in the church today. So could you tell us what the level of authority is of these claimed apostles? 
Yes. Well, Kenneth Hagen is the paradigm for this because he's the individual who is the founder of the movement who did claim to be a prophet. He's passed away. Hagen's doctrine on this was that the apostles that are in the church today and prophets that are in the church today are authoritative figures but are not scripture-writing individuals. They don't have the same kind of function in the church that Peter and Paul and James and John had, but nor are they simply missionaries or pastors or evangelists. They are individuals anointed with special authority and special revelational gifts to bring out from the teachings of Scripture truth that had been lost in Christianity and needed to be restored. By the way, we should mention that Pentecostalism in general and the Latter Rain Movement in particular, and the Word Faith Movement specifically, are all phenomena of what is called Restorationism, which is this idea that Christianity started off pristine and full and rich and robust, and gradually throughout the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages lost more and more of the truth of Christianity, uh, maybe entirely lost it, according to some religious groups like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. And then, perhaps for those who hold to a gradualist view, it gradually began to be restored through the reformers and through the revivalists like uh, John Wesley. But then in the Pentecostal movement, you have the claim that there's been a full restoration of biblical Christianity with all the supernatural manifestations. But restorationists never sit still. So in every generation, you get people coming along and saying, well, Pentecostalism was getting us very close, but we really need this as well. And so whether it's the Latter Rain Movement or the Word Faith Movement or the Toronto Blessing or whatever it might be, they claim that they are getting us even one step closer or maybe the final step to a full restoration of Christianity. And part of this is this idea that we need apostles and prophets in the last days before Jesus comes back. And again, that's something people have been saying for a couple of centuries. Uh, Hagen claimed to be one of these prophets, and other individuals in the Word Faith Movement are also regarded as prophets. And their authority is not such that they're writing new scripture, but they are speaking authoritatively with a message from God, and if you reject it, and especially if you reject them, you are in trouble with God. This is a, something that these individuals often describe as touching God's anointed, that if you criticize the ministries of somebody like Kenneth Hagin or Kenneth Copeland, you are attacking God's anointed messengers for the world today. I don't know who said it, but I believe one of these famous teachers said something along the lines of, if people who oppose us, uh, the Lord will strike them down. Yes, more than one person has said that, or has wished that God would do that. Benny Hinn made statements like that. Paul Crouch, the founder and, and uh, person that runs the Trinity Broadcasting Network, said something like that. So, uh, yes, a number of individuals have made these kinds of statements. Um, I had a thought about this restorationism that you were talking about, and I can see that as being somewhat of a distortion of a truth, because it does seem to me that there could well be times in church history when the gifts of the Spirit, let's say, have been forgotten and denied, and perhaps at a later point those can be rediscovered. But if that's true, why should one see that as a straight line, that there was an initial outpouring to start with, and then the church for centuries forgot certain aspects of the faith, and then there's now a time when this is rediscovered. Could it not be a constant forgetting and then recovering truth? Well, yes. Uh, I think church history is probably messier than restorationists like to portray it. I don't believe that the church got progressively worse for a millennium and now has been getting progressively better. I think rather that the church has been growing and changing and going through hard times and being rocked by problems and dealing with those for the entire period of church history. You know, there is usually some truth in false doctrines, and I think there is some truth here, that is that the church has not been static. Mm -hmm. And that there are things to learn, but this idea that there needs to be this complete return to the first century church life with apostles, prophets, etc., etc., and then Jesus can come back is an unbiblical construct that is really being used simply to promote certain people's ministries as essential for the church today. 
And one of the most distinctive teachings of this is indeed the words of faith, which you talked about uh, at the beginning of the interview. And we need to go into that a little bit more, which you say that these words of faith, they become effective almost in their own right in this teaching, that uh, when you pray, you're using words, of course, you believe that what you say will come true and that will really come true. Now, I understand that the kind of scriptures that are appealed to here would be, let's say, for example, Mark 11, verses 22 to 24, and I'm going to read that. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, my understanding is that this all hinges on faith in God, uh, but but my impression from some of these teachers is that they're almost suggesting that it is the words themselves that actually have this miraculous power. Is that right? Well, yes, but it, it, they have the power because of who's saying them. To really understand this properly, we're going to have to put it in the context of how word-faith doctrine views the relationship between God and human beings. In word-faith doctrine, God is a spirit being, and it, in many of their teachings, not Kenyans, who is the precursor to the movement, but in most of the uh, contemporary teachers of the movement, God has a spirit body. He has some kind of a body, though it's not a physical flesh and bone body, except Jesus, of course. But God has a spirit body. He has a mouth, a literal mouth of some kind. And he, I have to say, this does sound. This sounds like Mormonism again, actually. Well, <laughs> there, you can you can draw some interesting parallels. Uh, they're they're unrelated uh, genetically, if I may put it that way, but they they do have some interesting parallels. So God has a spirit body, he with a, a literal mouth, and God literally speaks words to get things done. So when Genesis says, "And God said, let there be light," this means that God literally used his mouth to voice the commands for these things to occur. So I guess there has to be some kind of spirit air that's vibrating when he articulates the sounds right. audibly. And you have to do it audibly. You can't think this in your head. You have to say it out loud. So God audibly vocalizes what he wants to happen. And because God is absolutely confident that whatever he believes is true and will happen, and whatever he says will occur, whenever God speaks a word like this, it's what word faith teachers call a word of faith. God knows it's going to happen, and it does. Now, according to the word of faith teachers, God made us as spirits also. We are essentially spirit beings like God. And we have been created in his image, which they interpret to mean we are spirit beings like him who have the same capacity to speak words based on what we believe and make things happen the same way God does. So when we speak words of faith according to this doctrine, we are doing the same kind of thing fundamentally that God did when he made the world. So then you go to a passage like Mark eleven twenty two to 24. This does not mean, as it is conventionally understood, that if in the right circumstances you ask God to do something, you can be assured he's going to do it. But rather, what it means is you are the kind of creature that can do the same kinds of things that God does when he makes the world by speaking words and knowing that what you say is going to happen. Okay, now my immediate reaction to that was I was looking at the scripture that I had in front from Mark 11 in front of me here, and I obviously have it in the English, I don't have it in the Greek, but I mean here it says, it will be done for him, which does suggest that it's pointing to God as the one who is doing this, yes. and not that you as uh, made spiritually in the image of God in some godlike way are bringing it about yourself. Well, that's exactly right. This is what is known commonly in the study of uh, Greek as a divine passive, it is a customary way of saying in Greek, God will make it happen. So the whole idea here in Mark 11 is this is talking about specific types of prayers in which God promises that when these proper types of prayers are made, and we'd have to talk about what the context of that is, that God promises that he will make it happen. Not that we will make it happen because we're the same kind of beings as God. That's not the idea at all. But yeah. rather, 
because God is trustworthy and has promised that under these circumstances, under these proper conditions, he's going to make certain things happen. So what we have really is a preformed theology that is guiding the exegesis of Scripture. So when you were talking about Genesis there, I was thinking, I don't think I've ever thought of God speaking in that physical way or quasi-physical way at all. I take it as metaphorical. I mean, I understand Genesis, you know, to have lots of metaphors and symbols in there, and this is one of them. And my understanding of it is that God is forming an intention and bringing about, and speaking is the way of metaphorically talking about that. Well, it's a very sensible and uh, conventional way of reading Scripture. Uh, The Word of Faith teachers, when they're even paying attention to the text of Scripture, are very commonly engaged in a kind of overly literal, almost uh, absurdly literal reading of the text. So, for example, notoriously, Kenneth Copeland interpreted Isaiah 40, the reference to God making the oceans uh, by having the waters of the oceans in the palm of his hand and measuring the heavens by the span, he absurdly interpreted the Amplified Bible version of Isaiah 40, verse 12, to mean that God is a being with a hand span of a little bit bigger hand than than Kenneth Copeland's. And so Copeland <laughs> estimated that God was about six foot one or six foot two and weighed maybe a couple hundred pounds. Now, that is that is incredible. It, if, mm-hmm. it would be perfectly understandable if people listening to this wondered if maybe I'm just making this up or twisting something here to make Kenneth Copeland sound ridiculous. But I'm not. That's exactly what he taught in all seriousness. And it f- comes out of this idea that we are this. And he explained it this way. This was his point. You and I are much more like God than we have been led to believe. He is much more like us than we've been led to believe. Uh, He's a being, very anthropomorphic being, according to Kenneth Copeland, who made the world speaking words of faith, and you have the same power in your tongue to make things happen. Yeah, um, when I'm thinking about that way of using scripture there that you've just mentioned, I mean, presumably he wouldn't be consistent about it because there are other scriptures which say that we are, you know, we are raised up on, uh, God raises up on, on eagle wings. So presumably he doesn't believe or didn't believe that God has wings. In the same chapter, as a matter of fact. <laughs> right, okay. Lovely. Even better. <laughs> Usually that's the case when people misread a text in an overly literal fashion the immediate context will often contain clues that something has gone wrong in the reading. Yeah, very good point indeed. Now, you mentioned earlier a man called Charles Capps. Um, Could you say something about him? Because so far as I've read, um, he did in fact believe, or I don't know whether he's still with us, but uh, believes or believed that words themselves have spiritual power. Yes, but again, they have power because they are being spoken by entities that are really divine beings of a sort. What he was teaching is really the same thing, perhaps in a little bit more in-your-face, overt way, but the same basic idea as what you find with Kenneth Hagen and Kenneth Copeland. As far as I know, by the way, Caps is still around. Uh, He would be about 80 years old, getting close to 80 years old, uh-huh. but he he's a preacher from the American South, from Arkansas, that accepted the doctrine of Kenneth Hagin, wrote a number of books, and uh, you know was a traveling evangelist and so forth. And by the way, you'll find this interesting, his home base is in England. Oh, right. England, Arkansas. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> oh, you disappointed me there. <laughs> So, yeah, but what he's saying is basically the same idea, that words have power because they are spoken by entities that have spiritual power. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't remember which article it was that I read, but I read an article once where Charles Capps was mentioned. Uh, Something was said along the lines of, this is very, very close to occult teaching, where words have power. Now, in the occult teaching, that will be for a different reason, but nevertheless, the claim was made that this is quite close. Would you agree with that? Well, there is a similarity. Uh, the worldviews are very different. Yeah. In occultism, 
powers are essentially impersonal powers that are latent in the universe or latent in all things, and we are tapping into these powers that are part of the larger world that goes beyond what we see with and touch and so forth. Uh, but it's an impersonal power. In word-faith doctrine, powers are all personal powers. God is a personal being. In fact, he's so personal that he's an embodied being that's anthropomorphic. And we are personal beings who also have spiritual powers that are latent within us and simply needing to be exercised. So it's a very different worldview. Word-faith teachers do not engage in what would be called occult practices, which is the use of physical paraphernalia to sort of tap into these spiritual powers. There's nothing like uh, the Ouija board or tarot cards or crystals or anything like that. So it's not occultism, but it is misleading people into thinking that they are able to do things spiritually or supernaturally from within their own beings that is simply not within the purview of us as creatures to do. Yeah, I mean, I can see obviously how that could be disillusioning when you find that it doesn't work. And uh, even more disillusioning when you're promised, as I believe they do promise, that you can be fully healthy and very wealthy even in this present life. Now, I want to ask you about that because I'm sure that both of us agree and believe that God wants our overall good. But that is not necessarily the same as our having perfect health and everything we want in this present life. And we could have a whole discussion about that point, which we haven't got time to do. But these teachers typically claim that Christ's death on the cross didn't just deal with our sins, that you know, if we believe, but his atonement, his death on the cross, included within it our right to freedom from all sickness and all material wants in this present life, if I've got them right. Could you explain how they justify that from the scriptures? Uh, yes. Well, there are a number of proof texts that Word of Faith teachers will use, and we could go through a number of them, but the main line of argument is that the problem of disease, sickness, infirmity, as well as poverty, lack of uh, material success, that these are symptoms of the curse, that Jesus Christ came to free us from this curse, and so having been freed from the curse, we should be free from its effects. The fundamental mistake here is not in thinking that Christ's atonement provides for our perfect freedom from all infirmity, weakness, etc., but that the full realization of that comes in this present life. That's the mistake. Mm -hmm. Because clearly, redemption, salvation, is not simply about being forgiven of sins, but it's about eternal life, immortality in the new heavens and new earth, where there will be no more tears, no more mourning, no more sickness or disease or death or any kind of lack of that nature. Yeah. So we have that as an absolute promise to those who are redeemed. There is a phenomenon in New Testament teaching that theologians like to refer to as the already and the not yet. The already is we have already been guaranteed certain things by God. We've already been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. We've already been forgiven of our sins. We've already been accepted by God as his children, His the adoption as yep. sons. There is an already aspect to our salvation, but there's also a not yet aspect to it. So that even though we have been given the spirit of adoption, Paul says in Romans 8, we are still awaiting the revelation or manifestation of our status as the adopted sons of God. That's still future. And so is the full realization of the perfect health and prosperity, the perfect freedom from all of the effects of the fall that we are promised through Jesus Christ. Now, in this mortal life, God can and does give us foretastes of that perfection that we look forward to in supernaturally or providentially delivering people from sicknesses whenever he is pleased to do so, by dramatically, even providentially or miraculously providing for us in ways that 
are a testimony to the presence of God and the, and the blessing of God in our lives. But he does that from time to time, according to his sovereign decision, and there is no guarantee that it happens even most of mm-hmm. the time, let alone all of the time. And so we thank God whenever he reminds us and gives us those foretastes of the full blessings that are still to come. But we do not make the mistake of thinking that God has guaranteed that we will experience complete freedom from the effects of the fall in this mortal life. We don't. Yeah, and I, when I think about this, uh, as theologians call this, um, an eschatological dimension to the New Testament teaching, which is clearly there, I tend to think of it rather in the way that you suggested there, that uh, these um, miracles that we might experience in this life would be foretastes. They would be, as it were, bringing in the, some of the blessings of the future life, just some of those blessings into the present, but not the whole of the future life into the present. And what occurs to me is how do some of these teachers deal with physical death? Because presumably, if all those benefits are realized now in the present life, we shouldn't even die. Well, the standard explanation for this is that a person who is walking by faith, who is living the life of the faith that the word faith movement idealizes, will live to a ripe old age, and then when it's time for him to go home to heaven, he will simply lay down his life, he will peacefully go into the night, but he'll be vigorous and healthy right up until it's time to say goodbye. And this is a nice a little bit of mythology, but in fact, most of the leading word faith evangelists and faith healers of the past 150 years have not died this way. Uh-huh. They have typically died from cancer or other debilitating infirmities. In some cases, multiple infirmities. They've had heart attacks. They've had all kinds of things happen. And a good example, even though there, there's some positive aspects to the story from their point of view, a good example is Joel Osteen's father, John Osteen. Osteen bragged, I'm afraid I have to use that term, he bragged that he was going to be living and ministering until he, he was 90. Well, he didn't make it. I think he made it to his 70s or something like that. Hmm. Now, living to your 70s isn't bad. That's not shabby. But he had declared in public that he was going to be ministering still throughout his 80s, and he didn't make it. And he died because he had a chronic health condition that finally claimed him. Well, that's the way it is with everybody. I'm sorry, you're not immune, you're not exempt, and no no amount of faith is going to prevent that from happening because it's not up to you. Indeed. And I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking of perhaps one of the greatest people who had a healing ministry in the 20th century, which was Smith Wigglesworth, who was remarkably free of illness, but he did have a very, very life-threatening illness at one point. I think it was, it might have been gallstones or something. I'm not quite sure what it was, but it, it was a very serious attack that he had. So even he yes. <laughs> was subject to the frailties that all of us are. Yes. And let me say this, that part of the reason why people get confused about this is that it is true that a positive outlook in life is healthful. People can do better physically, partly by having a very positive mindset about their condition or about their recovery. That's a proven medical fact. But we shouldn't confuse that with a supernatural power of us as spirits to be able to claim perfect health for as long as God wants us to be on this earth. That isn't a biblical teaching. It isn't how it works. So we shouldn't expect, as Kenneth Hagan, I believe, claims that every time we get a headache, we can just command it to go, and it will always go. (laughs) Yes, it's not how it works. (laughs) (laughs) No, indeed. Now, this brings us, of course, on to the pastoral dangers of this kind of teaching, because if people are promised all these things and they don't happen, then, well, I suppose in some cases it could actually cause some people to say, well, Christianity is just a load of rubbish and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Do you think that's a real danger? It's not only a real danger, it really happens. But sometimes people die because they don't go to the doctor. I had a relative who watched TBN all the time, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, imbibed their doctrine, and it reinforced his natural reluctance to go to the doctor for something that was clearly in need of medical attention. It killed him. 
So this is, it's affected my family. It's affected people that I know personally. And there was a famous book that came out uh, probably 20 years ago or so called We Let Our Son Die by a couple that had been involved in this kind of teaching and did not get their son the medical attention that he needed because they were relying on this faith healing kind of teaching and it took their son. So it has a very practical consequence very often in that kind of situation. It does lead people to give up on the Christian faith if it seems like it doesn't work. If you attach various unrealistic expectations to the Christian life that don't materialize, uh, and here I think the word materialize is used quite literally, then you're likely to pack it in and say, uh, as you put it, it's a load of rubbish. So that's a very significant danger. There's also the significant problem and reality that this teaching divides believers in the body of Christ, because this teaching is associated with a kind of spiritual elitism. We've got a corner on what God is revealing today. He's given us something. We are the people who really have faith because we really believe this stuff, and the rest of Christianity is losing it. They're missing out because they don't have this message of healing and prosperity that we have. And so it tends to cause divisions. It tends to cause confusion in people's minds. How many people do you suppose imagine that what Christianity teaches is what's being broadcast by these evangelists on the Trinity Broadcasting Network? Probably a fair number of people who are misled into thinking that's what Christianity teaches. And so, you know, that's hooey. And so they decide it's not for them. So there are a lot of very serious consequences. There are evangelistic consequences. There are pastoral consequences. There are very individual and personal consequences to believing this false doctrine. Yes, I was speaking a few weeks ago to Orly Anthony, who, as you know, was involved in uh, exposing some of the uh, charlatan TV evangelists. And he was yes. saying that in, in many of those cases where people were saying that the evangelist was essentially money grabbing, that many people presumably were thinking, oh, well, this is what Christianity is. It's a money grabbing exercise. I don't want anything to do with that. Is there a link between those phenomena there, do you think? Oh, sure. Now, not everyone who believes in the word faith teaching is motivated by greed, so I don't want to generalize in that way. But nevertheless, there is a lot of money being made by some people who are promoting this doctrine and selling, uh, and, and I think selling is the right word, selling hope to people in the form of false doctrine. These televangelists And again, especially Paul and Jan Crouch, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and the people that they promote who are teaching the same doctrine, they bring in to their organization tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars over the years from people that are sending, you know, their last savings, uh, who are sending whatever they can, because one of the doctrines that is associated with this movement and with some other similar related movements is a doctrine called the seed faith doctrine, which is if you plant a seed of faith in the form of giving money to that ministry, there is supposedly a biblical promise that you're going Mm -hmm. to get back even more money or you're going to get back a material blessing of some kind like physical healing, but you've got to pay. You've got to pay up front. You've got to invest in this ministry. You send us your check, and God's going to bless you, but you've got to show God that you really believe it by planting the seed of faith. So these people send millions and millions of dollars to people who aren't practicing the same doctrine. I guarantee you Paul and Jan Crouch are not sending millions of dollars to other ministries so that they can get blessed. That's a very good point indeed. That's not how it works. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So this kind of teaching is ripe for exploitation by these people. I'm afraid so. Yeah. Um, I wondered whether you also thought that even if people were not turned off completely by this kind of teaching, in some cases that it damages people's relationship with God because it strikes me that one is could be concentrating so much on struggling to say the right words and struggling to have a strong belief that certain things are going to take place, that it's taking one's concentration off the person of God and humbly coming before God to ask him for to intercede or ask petitions. Do you feel there's a danger that it could actually distract from people's relationship with their creator? Uh, yes, I think this is a distraction from the ordinary Christian life 
which is not focused on getting material blessings by supernatural means. It's not focused on me, 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 and getting what's mine mm. and uh, overcoming my difficulties by some kind of miraculous means. But rather, the Christian life is focused on becoming more like Christ, uh, becoming a person who is, you know, a person of love, of holiness, a uh, person who is focused on other people, on giving to other people, not because of what you might get out of it, but because that's what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a person of love. There is the serious danger here of distraction from the main thing. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 1, that false teachers often engage in diversion from the main business of the Christian life, which is growing in faith, hope, and, and love, which is growing in one's relationship with Jesus Christ as a faith relationship in which we're trusting him even when things aren't going swimmingly, because our faith is not just about what we can get out of it in this mortal life, but it's yes. about developing a close relationship with him that's going to last forever. And so when people have an unrealistic understanding of what the Christian life is all about, and they're fixated on what they can get out of it, they are distracted. And so many of these people tune in to the Trinity Broadcasting Network daily to try to get something happening in their lives, or they go to a Benny Hinn crusade and hope that he will wave his jacket over them and slay them in the spirit so maybe they'll be healed or maybe they'll be able to get their job back or maybe they'll be able to get their spouse back. These people have to touch them spiritually. They, they're looking for the next spiritual high or the next spiritual fix because they don't understand that all of the resources that we need for life and godliness are to be found in Jesus Christ alone. And we don't need to go to a particular convention in order to have that life of Jesus mediated to us through a Benny Hinn and his jacket or whatever. We can find that by just in our prayer life, actually, approaching Christ directly. Yes, in fellowship with other believers, in prayer, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the same yeah. resources that have been available to Christians since A.D. 33. And you think that people would exercise their minds and say to themselves, well, there's something not quite right about this teaching and turn to the scriptures and find this is actually contradicting what the Bible says here. But am I right in thinking that many of these people are not taught to go to the scripture in this uh, searching kind of way and not really encouraged to use their minds? Because one of the entailments of the spiritual anthropology that you were talking about earlier on, that we are essentially spirits and that we have a body and we have a soul, is, and if I'm reading these these kinds of teachers right, is that the spirit part of us, which is the, the essential part of us, is non-rational. And therefore, if that's what we are, essentially non-rational beings, then that's not a great encouragement to use our rational faculties. Have I got that right? Yes, I think that's correct. I think in, in the main, this is how word faith teaching is propagated, that this is a message that is directed to the mind, but the mind is supposed to sort of sit in the back seat and let this spiritual truth take hold in their spirit. And questioning it, uh, rationally uh, objecting to it, is seen as, a, as an act of unbelief. And so there is a tendency to discourage critical thinking about these things. And the result, of course, is that people do not read the Bible carefully to see whether these things are so, as uh, Luke puts it in Acts 17.11, but rather they accept what they're being taught. Let's face it, most people today, at least in my part of the world, are biblically illiterate. They do not really understand the Bible. They don't read the Bible. They may read bits and pieces here and there, verse there, a verse there, what they heard in the Sunday morning sermon, you know, a thought for the day kind of approach to the Bible. But they don't understand the Bible. They haven't read it cover to cover. They don't understand the storyline behind the Bible and how the different parts fit together. They haven't really learned to understand the Bible in that way. And so when people quote verses of the Bible out of context, they don't see that. In fact, many times you have individuals who will be saying that they're quoting something in the Bible and the Bible doesn't say anything of the sort. And I'm afraid that's true, for example, with Joel Osteen. Many times what he says is in the Bible is so far from what the text actually says that 
you wonder where he got it. Indeed. I mean, it's often said that context is everything. And of course, that's an exaggeration. But nevertheless, there's some truth to it, isn't it? You can read a text and you can completely misunderstand it because you haven't the keys to understand that text because you haven't, as you say, read the storyline. That's correct. But do you think there's a problem even wider than this? Uh, Francis Schaeffer, many years ago, complained about the anti-intellectualism within the church, so that Christians were not engaging in apologetics, uh, theology, philosophy, had a very distrusting kind of attitude towards science. That's not to say that you know everything that the world of science comes up with is necessarily true, but you know, um, nevertheless, that many Christians have this kind of distrust of learning in general. Do you think this all feeds into that attitude as well? Oh, sure. It is part of the bigger cultural landscape that is at work here. I think that, you know, what we have been seeing really for a couple of centuries is a growing emphasis on personal experience and personal fulfillment and realization as the essence of what people are looking for in religion, in spirituality, and the idea that truth is somehow supposed to be the foundation of that tends to get lost. Uh, what people are looking for is a spiritual high, as I put it earlier. They're looking for a spiritual experience. And it is often said you can't argue with an experience. Well, that's the way some people want it. They want to find their hope and their faith in their own personal experience, and they're not prepared to subject that to scrutiny based on a reasoned reading of the Bible. Now, that brings me to a very controversial question, which I, did, I spoke to you about before the interview, and uh, that is where I was asking you about the possibility of a connection with the New Age. Now, I'm going to ask this in a very careful way, because I'm not suggesting that this kind of teaching that we've been talking about comes out of the New Age in any way. But what you've just been talking about there reminds me of this culture of the supermarket of religions, where people feel that they should be able to just go into this hypothetical supermarket and pick something off the shelf which fits them, which makes them feel good. And that's something that I very much associate with the, the new religious movements, uh, the New Age providing a great deal of those. Do you feel there's a danger with some of these statements, such as we are like God in some way, and that we are essentially non-rational beings? Do you feel there's a danger that there could be too close a theology to New Age philosophy in some respects? Well, let's put it this way. Once you establish the precedent that doctrinal discernment is out the window, that what you go by is a spiritual experience, then you're flinging open the door wide for whatever might come along. And so a lack of discernment uh, is going to have a general you know, effect of making people more susceptible to deception from other sources and other places. Now, I, I don't think the word faith movement is New Age. I don't think it's going toward the New Age. It's a different phenomenon. But there are some parallels. There are certain kinds of things that are very popular in our culture that people are looking for, and they can find it in different places. And so what we need to understand is that we are up against a broad trend in our culture that is not limited to one religious movement or one religious group or one sect, but it is, it's throughout our civilization now, and it shows up in a variety of very different ways in very different places. But nevertheless, there are these commonalities, a, a de-emphasis on the rational in matters of faith. Uh, sort of compartmentalizing science over here and spirituality over there. The idea that it's your experience that really counts. The idea that religion is supposed to make you feel better about yourself. It's supposed to improve your self-esteem. It's supposed to make you ebullient or, uh, you know, sort of supremely confident in your life. That, that It's supposed to be positive. Don't talk about negative things. Don't talk about false prophets. Don't talk about doctrinal error. Talk about the positive things. I want to hear the good things all the time. Make me happy. I mean, these are very common, almost presuppositions, that is, unexamined assumptions that people bring to matters of faith and spirituality. And they may find it in the Word of Faith movement. They may find it in the New Age movement. They may find it in Mormonism or anywhere. But nevertheless, they are finding it because that's what they're starting with. That's their assumption about what they're supposed to be getting out of it. 
And I suppose that really brings me to my final question, which is along the lines of, well, what can we actually do about this? Because what you're describing here is this global phenomenon with the power of television. You mentioned the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which uh, you know, people right across the globe have got access to this with uh, many teachers who are teaching this kind of thing. What can we actually do, apart from just have you know, small shows like this, to actually make any difference to this? Well, programs like this are very important because the more numerous they become, the broader and wider the truth gets out. So I, I wouldn't minimize it at all. I, I think that we need to get the word out wherever we can. Social media and, uh, and the Internet in general are somewhat of a leveling force. It allows anybody to get the message out that they have or some of the messages aren't good. But nevertheless, we need to take uh, the opportunities as we can. I would also say that we really need to go back to our churches, to our pastors, to our Sunday school teachers, to people like that, leaders in the Christian churches. And we need to say, we need to do some preventative maintenance here. We need to be teaching our people about the dangers of false doctrine, about the importance of being discerning, knowing what you believe and why you believe it, basic Christian apologetics, understanding what the Christian life is all about, basic teaching on the Bible, helping our people to become biblically literate. I mean, these are the kinds of things that should be going on week after week after week in our churches. Instead, what many churches do is they have enticing programs to manage your finances better or uh, fun and games for the children and those things have their place, but if those things become the tail wagging the dog, then we're not going to be preparing those who are raised in the church to have the sound mind and faith that is needed to counteract and be aware of the dangers of false doctrines like the Word of Faith teaching. Absolutely, and all the other dangers that are there. I mean, I'm very conscious when I think of our own church, how there seems to be very little good teaching for the young people. And I'm certainly, I'm sure that most of them, perhaps all of them, wouldn't even understand what the word, wouldn't recognize the word apologetics, wouldn't understand what it was all about. And yet, it seems to me that they very definitely need that, these young people, when they're going to go off to college soon, they're going to find a very secular, anti-religious environment, and they need to have preparation for that. And they don't find it, unfortunately. Well, you're exactly right, and I, I think that what we often see is that the apologist doesn't get called until there's a problem. It's kind of like people don't go to the doctor until they're sick, and sometimes fatally sick. Right. <laughs> well, sometimes people don't call in teachers who understand these issues until it's too late, and so very often... Uh, a ministry like ours will get a call from somebody who will say, I have a wife or a, a child or a cousin who's getting involved in, in a cult or who's getting involved in this heretical religious group or who's getting involved in stuff that doesn't look right to me. And they've already gotten involved in it. Mm. And if only some teaching had been provided earlier on, the problem could have been avoided uh, in the first place. It's a lot easier to keep people away from false doctrine by giving them truth and educating them than it is to get them out after they've been seduced. Yeah, I'm going to back up what you say there with a, my own little anecdote. I have an uncle who I don't think he's so much into that kind of thing anymore, but there was a time about 15 to 20 years ago where he was very much into this word of faith kind of thing, and I wanted to talk to him about it, that I you know, I was concerned about it, but he wouldn't really listen to what I had to say because he would constantly accuse me of using my mind. <laughs> His exact words were, you're letting your mind get in the way, which yeah. I, I didn't know how to respond to that. Well, uh, the mind is given to us by God precisely to do these kinds of things. The greatest commandment, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we are to love God with our entire being, which he says includes our minds. And so I would say there is nothing wrong with using your mind to understand the truth of God. That's what it's for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I ask you finally what you would advise people to do who do have friends and family who are at the moment caught up in this kind of thing, that the preventative approach has failed, they've fallen into this and they're expecting that whatever they name and claim they're going to get and they're perhaps on the verge of disappointment and maybe throwing the towel in. What kind of advice would you have to people who want to reach out to friends and family like that? 
Well, of course, the first thing would be that we need to make sure that we ourselves are in a stable, sound Christian church and life, that we are living the Christian life ourselves, so that we have a positive alternative to what is being taught, so that when somebody who's in that situation does get disillusioned or discouraged, that we can be there with something that's a good alternative. So that's primary. That's the first thing. But then I would also say that as we have opportunities, we need to gently offer to talk about these things with them, share our perspective, ask them questions. Questions asked in a, in a humble, polite way can be non-threatening, whereas coming to somebody and saying, you know what, you're believing is a bunch of lies, uh, <laughs> that yeah. tends to put people on the defensive and they're not particularly open to that. But if you say sure. to them, you know, there's something I didn't really understand about that, and maybe you could help me understand, you know, how this idea fits with this particular verse of the Bible, or maybe you could explain to me what happens if somebody feels like they've got faith and they pray or they say the words of faith and, and nothing happens. Uh, what's your understanding of what comes next? How do you deal with that? You know, asking questions in a friendly, uh, humble way, I think, can help open some doors in a way that other tactics will not. Yeah, that's brilliant advice. Thank you very much. And I guess that you have a great deal of advice with your ministry that you have at org. Before we close, could you tell people how they can find out more about what you do in your ministry? Well, yes, of course, our website is the main way that people are probably going to find out about us these days. And as you said, the uh, web address is irr.org. That's one I and two R's dot O-R-G. And the website there has information about uh, who we are and what we do. We have resources on a number of different religious movements. Also, if people contact us, and there's a way there from the website to contact us, they can find out about a book that I've written on this subject of the word faith movement, uh, which currently is only available from me personally because the book is out of print, but I can provide people with a text copy of it upon request. So that's if people are specifically interested in this subject, that's a resource that uh, we uniquely at this moment have available. But we have a lot of resources, especially on groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. We have resources also on the reliability of the Bible and on certain doctrinal topics where there's a lot of confusion, such as the doctrine of the Trinity. And I certainly welcome people to visit our website and give us feedback. Great. And I will link to that, of course, in the show notes for today and uh, any other resources that I think will be great to link to, because I'm sure there will be many. And uh, so may I finally say thanks ever so much, uh, Robert Bowman, for speaking to us. It's been a fantastic interview, given loads and loads of, of information for us to think about and lots of good advice as well. So thanks ever so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Julian. Thank you so much for having me.